David Pantney, well, thank you for finding time to do this Zoom interview. I would very much prefer to talk to you live in one room, but it's still great to see you using the technology. And uh, thank you for agreeing to, to do this inter interview for the Mitchell Weinberg Institute in Warsaw. And my first question is, do you remember when you actually first, for the first time in your life, heard the name Mitchell Weinberg and then Weinberg's music, because I assume that was in this order. Yes, I, I remember it absolutely perfectly. Um, it's an extraordinarily trivial incident with massive consequences, of course. Um, I remember opening my mail. Actually, I had previously opened my mail and seen uh, a flyer, a little printed one sheet. Um, which came from Peer Music, um, and which said, um, we are introducing you to uh, composer Mr. Swaff Weinberg, um, and um, friend of Shostakovich, opera about Auschwitz. And that's basically the information that it had. And actually, I remember that I, in the course of various things, I actually lost this little piece of paper under all various other bits of paper. So a few days later, I was trying to tidy up my guests and came across this piece of paper and looked at this again. Weinberg, friend of Shostakovich, opera about Auschwitz, oh, for God's sake. Uh, and I'm literally about to put it in the waste paper basket. And then I thought, what? Friend of Shostakovich? Opera about Auschwitz? Wait a minute, what is this? And, and that was, and it's as simple and banal as that. That was the start. Um, and I actually straight away um, Googled uh, Weinberg, which of course at that point um, was not so simple because it took me a little while to figure out that most of the entries about Weinberg were under his Russian spelling not W-E-I-N-D, but V-A-I-N. So for a while I didn't find this, but then I found. And I, when, I, when I looked up the Russian Weinberg, of course I got the whole list of old Melodia recordings. And I, I suddenly realized, for God's sake, this guy has composed a hell of a lot of music. Um, because I think most of the symphonies were there and it didn't take me very long to find out then that there were, whatever it is, 23 string quartets and uh, da 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 and, uh, and of course this opera. And um, I thought, oh, I absolutely have to investigate this. And I think the first step was that I, I, uh, I got hold of the libretto from, I, I contacted Peer Music and they, they, sent, me, they sent me the libretto and this was, I was very concerned about this because um, in any case, the whole idea of an opera about Auschwitz is highly problematic, as, as you know. Um, and particularly sitting as I was sitting in Bregenz, um, you know, a very provincial part of Austria, rural Austria, where there are quite a few, uh, let's say, Nazi sympathizers still hanging out in, in the hills. 
um, you know, I knew that this had to be a very, very convincing libretto to deal with this subject in front of that audience and, 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 and with all the background and particularly the peculiar Austrian reluctance really to acknowledge the part it played in the whole Nazi experiment. Um, but I was, I, I read the libretto and I, I, and I began listening to all these recordings and I was enormously impressed. Um, not only by the opera itself, of course, there was this, I, I also got from Peer Music, the recording that was made at this concert performance, which had taken place. Um, With Weinberg at the piano, you mean this one? No, no, no. I mean the one where... Ah, from recorded. Moscow. Yes, from Moscow. And I did also have the, yes, I also had the, the, the piano recording with Weinberg himself. And um, the, um, shortly after that, I mean, I, I brought this topic to, to the board of the festival and said, I think this is an amazing opportunity for us to present the world premiere. And we then began constructing, or I began constructing the program of the festival which was to end up actually, I think it was 23 different pieces of Weinberg that we played in what, that one festival. Yes. So it was, a, it, was, uh, it was actually part of this sort of no escape policy that, that I adopted <laughs> in programming in Bregen. So if you were going to feature, as we did also Szymanowski or Weinberg or whoever, it was done in, in a very, very saturated way so that every part of the festival, I mean, we did, I think, a, a beautiful program of, of poetry and chamber music um, with, with Weinberg. Um, and also uh, the portrait. We did the portrait, we did several, uh, I mean, uh, lots of pieces in the symphonic concerts. We even played uh, one, a, a number from his ballet, um, Pinocchio, Burattino, uh, in the opening ceremony, I think we played this piece of ballet music. Uh, so we we played a whole range of his stuff, including the Requiem, um, uh, and of course the premiere of The Passenger. And and I think this was important because um, it wasn't just the launch of this one opera or like one symphony or something. It, it really revealed to the world the the quantity and quality of music that, that was available um, and, and, and now you know when you when you go into a serious record store you know there's quite a footage of yes. recordings sitting there which is amazing I mean it's, a, it's wonderful to see how, how that has taken off and uh, the momentum now is way beyond what the festival did in, in, in 2010 um, you know it's become a a major rediscovery of all areas of his work, solo violin work, chamber music, symphonies, everything. If still I'm... one or two operas missing. Still, sorry? Is... Still one or two operas of his missing from... Well, the... Madonna and the Soldier, but we'll come to that. Yes, yes. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, actually the, the, world the world stage premiere of The Passenger was a matinee performance uh, at 11. Is that correct? Or... That could well be correct. Uh, uh, and because, you know, I, I remember this extremely elegant Austrian people and Bavarians as well, 
coming to the performance and then they were frozen at the end you know we, you, one could feel the sunshine outside on the on the lake constance and really the chill inside the hall how do you remember the curtain calls after the the, the premiere well i i do remember that the the um, the audience was in a palpable state of shock they'd never expected to be confronted and they know about all this stuff of course they do i mean like like everybody else but actually as you say seeing it on a sunny sunday morning um you're absolutely right it was a matinee performance um and that was because the festival always um alternated opening with the new lake opera mm -hmm. and opening with the inside opera and i think that year we must have opened with aida uh, and that's why the premiere came as a matinee in the same weekend mm -hmm. um and that was the sort of normal pattern this wasn't anything particularly to do with the passenger that's just was the pattern of performance in Bregenz. But I remember that the audience was absolutely shattered by it. And because then there was something of a world tour of your production really, because it went to Warsaw, it went to London, very much later to Tel Aviv, a few places in America, including New York and Chicago. If you were to compare the audience reactions to, to that production, would it make sense to compare at all? Well, um, it always had a very powerful effect everywhere. It was, of course, extraordinary to see it in Tel Aviv, um, where, as a matter of fact, I was almost the most fearful about the reaction, partly because um, of the of the sort of debate generally about the appropriateness of using the Holocaust as a, as a way of selling books and films and entertainment of one kind and another. And one's aware that, um, one's aware, aware how, how treacherous that territory is. I don't know whether you know, there's this very marvelous, tiny little book um, by, I think he's called Aman, which is the diary of Hess, who was the governor of Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And, and Aman writes, this, he produced this, this version of this diary of Hess um, as a response to a novel that an American author had written. I, I actually forget his name now, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he said, Angesichts der Wirklichkeit ist alles Erfindung obscene. In, in the face of the truth, mm -hmm. all invention is obscene. And so he produced, yes? Yes, yes, but because to that, I, I understand that in the context of a novel or a film, but actually that, in my opinion, that made the opera so very powerful because opera is not about reality, but more about the truth which you access in a different way. And that is, I think, what made this opera so very powerful. I think it's also a very important aspect is that this opera is, is, is not an erfindung, not, it's not an invention uh, created years later by writers or 
some, the well, two writers involved here. I mean, the Posmish was obviously an, an inmate, so it was her direct experience. And Weinberg was of the same generation. Who, of course, the fact of his life in exile was was to, uh, due to this whole event. Um, so it was authentic in a way in which very few other Holocaust uh, artistic creations can claim to be. Uh, because it was, uh, yes, it was created by people who were protagonists in these events. And how, how would you explain the fact that for so many years, nobody actually did this opera? Because there is this theory that it could not have been done in the Soviet bloc, especially the Soviet Union, because the whole story resonated too strongly with the Gulag too. Do you know, I, I, I don't think that's the reason. Um, I, I think there's a, 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 actually a rather more ridiculous reason, um, which is that um, the, at the Soviet attitude was very much not to um, produce works which could not be said to contribute to the communist cause and focusing on Jews and their tribulations in Auschwitz was just not interesting for the Soviet. They didn't want attention to be given to other people's suffering. If you want to talk about suffering, talk about Stalingrad, <laughs> you know, talk about the great patriotic war, talk about all those things. Uh, and that's, for example, also why, why um, Grossman's wonderful book, Life and Fate, was also not published. And he was present at the liberation of Auschwitz and writes about it in, in that book. Um, so so the, the, the Soviet attitude was just simply to push this aside, not, not even directly to ban it, but just simply to say it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to our needs as communists. Uh, which is a, sh a shocking um, realization in a way that that, that was their attitude. Mm. And then the portrait, because I have to tell you that I, uh, I attended the Poznan premiere of your production of that opera with three or four actually Russian friends, some of them eminent music critics. And they were quite furious after the production. And they were actually infuriated with just one thing, the fact that the portrait of Stalin appeared in your production. So where did you find this link? Well, um, I, I looked at the, the fact that um, the, the inherent topic of the portrait is uh, an artist who sells his soul, his, his artistic soul, and becomes a portrait maker of the wealthy and this high society people of St. Petersburg, of, of Gogol's time. Um, and so the issue of the piece is really artistic integrity. Um, and Weinberg, like anybody else who, who survived as an artist, and of course, particularly his friend Shostakovich, um, understood extremely well um, the pressures on all Soviet artists at some point to make a decision 
um, am I am I supporting the regime or am I somehow going underground or and knowing that the second decision would mean that you would probably never be read or performed or or, or published or or whatever um, and you know Weinberg Weinberg knew from personal experience what not being a member of the party meant and and he had to he, he, he had to make his own compromises. I mean, he wrote circus music and film music, and that's how he survived, uh, you know, by writing commercial music. Um, and, and so, to me, the idea of an artist who ends up painting Stalin's portrait is, is, a, is a, a perfect illustration of the problem that an artist under totalitarian rule faces. And probably many people in Russia right now are facing those decisions. Do I, do I appear to be a supporter of the government or, do I, or am I about to be silenced? Mm. This is the choice. Um, but there were also references, if, if, if I remember correctly, to Damien Hirst in this very same production. So you had the other side of the spectrum, if you like, in the same story. Right, right, well, because I think that as I say, the subject of the piece is artistic integrity, and that is not only confined to people in totalitarian regimes. I mean, one can also, uh, you know, sleep with the capitalist devil uh, <laughs> as well. That's also that's also a way of making a career, and I think we can. Well, any might... reason to say that Damien has did that or does that? Right. Right. Uh, well, actually, that's quite what you say is quite a paradox that Weinberg lived in a communist totalitarian state and had to be commercial as a composer to survive, whereas his music waited for quite a long time to become popular and performed worldwide. Well, it was it, it was always very clear. He himself made it clear, I think, and 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 people have spoken about this that that. Um, Weinberg felt this very typical, intense sense of responsibility for the fact that he had survived and he alone of all his family had survived. And this survival must be for some purpose. And that's why he fanatically wrote music um, because he needed to feel he was justifying his own luck. Uh, in, in, in making it through those, those terrible events. And then, of course, surviving being arrested and imprisoned by Stalin. I mean, <laughs> you know, he, he survived more than once. I mean, he, he fled from the Nazis twice, after all, once into Soviet Russia, and then from Minsk, uh, again, when, when, the, when the Germans invaded to, to Tashkent. Um, and then he had to survive Stalin's... Uh, uh, terror and, and of course his his father-in-law was one of the first victims of, of the anti-jewish purges that that stalin initiated in uh, i forget the date exactly but it was 48 48 exactly yes there's uh, that very nice story about about 48 which is not strictly relevant but apparently uh, you, you know golda meir um i think visited Israel in 48. And of course the Jewish population turned out in their thousands to, to welcome her. And Stalin was apparently shocked to discover that there were so many Jews in, in Russia. This can't really be true, but it's a nice illustration of, of you know, that 
something that could irritate him, get up his nose, some, somebody else drawing a large crowd of people, making him feel uh, insecure in relation to, 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 to Jews. And uh, when we spoke before Poland's centenary of independence, I asked you which, which opera would you like to do next, perhaps in Poland, you said, Madonna and the Soldier. How serious was that? Well, it, it, it is sort of serious. I mean, Weinberg's position in, in relation to Poland is complex. Um, he spent his whole life in the Soviet Union from the age of 19 onwards. Um, there was a very unfortunate uh, episode when Weinberg actually came back to Poland as part of a Soviet delegation of composers. Yes, for the worst uh, autumn festival. And, and was therefore branded basically as being a toady, and this takes us back to the portrait, uh, you know, a compromiser with the occupying power. He became seen as a Soviet composer, not as a Polish composer. Um, and, and, you know, it took the passenger and the subsequent a wave of exploration of his work to re-establish his Polish identity. Uh, I mean, as we know, in, in, in going into the Soviet Union, he even lost his Polish name. Uh, you know, he became Moshe Weinberg. Uh, Moisei, because yeah, Moshe is perfectly good in Polish, whereas Moisei is the Russian, official Russian version of the Jewish name. Right, That's, yes, well, there you are. Um, so, I mean, and, and in all kinds of ways, you know, he, one of the reasons for, one of the reasons for the disappearance of his music is an illustration of what can happen to people in exile. Uh, you know, for a while he was played and supported by that amazing generation of Soviet musicians, you know, um, Gilels and, and, and Oistrak and uh, Rostropovich and so on. As that generation died out, he had no context. There was no group of students from his university who'd, who'd, who'd you know, revered him as their professor and would help to, to spread his work. So, so without that context, without that background of, of having brought, grown up in a society of which he's essentially a member, he was not he was ultimately a member of no society because the Soviet Union collapsed and, and, and that society, which he had become Dave by force a member, um, didn't exist. And so his whole raison d'etre as a, as a public figure just then evaporated. And just to, to finish this, this, this wonderful conversation, I have a difficult question actually. How would you describe Weinberg's music, knowing it so well? Well, um, how, this, that, is a difficult, that, that, that is a difficult question. Um, it's a difficult question partly because it's very difficult to avoid coming up with a reference to Shostakovich. Clearly they shared many aesthetic standpoints. Uh, and we know also that that um, they were artistically very good friends and colleagues and, and Weinberg played uh, at many of these famous four-handed piano playthroughs of, of Shostakovich's works at the League of Composers and 
and we know that Shostakovich supported Weinberg very much, actually going back to Madonna and the Soldier, when that was being premiered in, in, in Leningrad, uh, Shostakovich went there to the rehearsals and, 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 and was very supportive of, of, of him in that. We should return to Madonna and the Soldier briefly, uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you would like. Um, so, uh, and, you know, as, as a kind of, I mean, he could be called a Soviet symphonist. You know, he has identifiable connections with, with those works, those, those grand and serious symphonic works. Um, there are elements of Mahler to be heard, particularly in The Passenger, I think. Um, and I think there is a, in contrast to Shostakovich's sometimes very jaunty, bitter sense of satirical irony, um, Weinberg's music is characterized by, I would suggest, a very lyrical melancholy. Um, there is something even more personal. I know a lot of Shostakovich's music, particularly the string quartets, are very, very personal and emotional. But Weinberg, as a Weinberg, was I think a private composer, a, a composer of private melancholy grief. Hmm. And Shostakovich was a public composer. He was he was the the public face of Soviet art. Hmm. Um, and and so they. They are very different, actually. Um, and and I, I, Weinberg is not as great a composer as Shostakovich, but a very, very serious composer. And actually, the interesting thing is that I think none of the operas comes anywhere near being as good as The Passenger. I mean, the portrait is nowhere near in the same league. Um, I wouldn't say that about the symphonies, some of the, particularly the fifth and sixth symphonies, I think are really truly great works um, in the way the passenger is. But in the other operas, he, he didn't quite find, find the same level of inspiration that, that he found in what was obviously the very intensely personal, historical subject of, of, of uh, Auschwitz. But as far as Madonna and the Soldier is concerned, it's interesting because it, of course, touches a very raw spot. I mean, I, we spoke about Weinberg's relationship with Poland uh, and that this was a very ambiguous relationship. Um, and of course, in the Madonna and the Soldier, he is describing actually rather sympathetically um, the experiences of Soviet soldiers in Poland, which for most Poles is probably an experience characterized by rape and murder, not by a, a young soldier falling in love with a beautiful girl on a farm in the Polish countryside. I mean, it's sort of dangerously idyllic what, 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 what Weinberg composes there. And what interests me about it is, is that it seems to be, and I, 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 you know, I think we, have, we need to do more work on this piece. It seems to me to be a very interesting collage of, of lyrical, folkloristic ideas 
describing this sort of idyll in a time of war. Um, and it would be a big test of Polish tolerance, I think, uh, to see if they could really also find the good in this piece. And it will be, I don't know if it's doable, but it would be extremely interesting to explore it. Well, that would all depend on the director. So I would very much like to see your production of it one day, <laughs> perhaps in, in Poland. So just to finish, you know, you, in a way, you gave us the Poles Weinberg Bach because you discovered him as a great Polish-Jewish-Soviet composer. Because to me, I think he's a very Polish-Jewish-Soviet symphonist, if I may paraphrase your words. But in a way, Weinberg gave us another poll because partly thanks to your work on the on the passenger, you've also become a Polish citizen. So <laughs> it's, it's a happy happy ending of this very sad story in a way. Indeed, and it's it's a passport I'm extremely happy to use now. <laughs> I can well imagine, David Pantney. Thank you very much for this conversation. It's my pleasure. <laughs>